the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Folks, welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new 94.9 FM at AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, Florida, of course. And uh, we're always very pleased when you join us. Uh, Alan Dempsey does our engineering each weekend. Does it well. And Andrew Herdliska is our producer. Uh, Matthew Sorens joins us in the first half hour. He is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief, based in Aurora, Illinois, and uh, the author of Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refuge Crisis. What will rule our hearts, fear or compassion? Matthew, wonderful to catch up with you, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me about your book. Why was it important to write it? Yeah, you know, I work with World Relief, and we've been working with local churches and, and with the U.S. State Department for many, many years to help resettle and, and help integrate refugees into our communities. And frankly, that's never been a particularly controversial thing. But in the last year, it obviously has been something that's been all over the news. And with it, you know, a lot of people have started to think about refugees as a political issue or a cultural issue. Our challenge with the book is really to encourage, especially those who are uh, who would consider themselves Christians, to think about this as uh, an issue from the perspective of our faith, and to make sure we have the facts right, and to tell some of the stories of the people whom we've served, both in the United States and internationally, over the, the many decades that World Relief has been doing this work. Bill and Lynn Hybels uh, wrote the foreword. Uh, the opening chapter that you get into, Matthew, right away, an unprecedented global crisis. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, unfortunately, the numbers right now are, are pretty overwhelming. Um, the United Nations says that there's 21.3 million refugees in the world today, which is a higher number than at any point in recorded history. Um, it's, and, and just to be clear, a refugee isn't just someone who's moved from one country to another. There's many more of those people. But a refugee specifically is someone who has been forced to flee uh, persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution to flee their, their country. Uh, and that persecution has to be on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. So globally, there's more than 21 million of those people. And that is a crisis. But we also believe that, that God can work redemptively in the midst of a crisis. And our real hope with the book is that it would challenge, uh, especially those uh, who are part of the church, to respond to that crisis. And that's true in the United States, where we're receiving a small number of those refugees, um, less than one-half of 1%, but um, that adds up to a fair number of people, as well as in the Middle East, in Europe, in other parts of the world as well. Now we move to uh, this topic. Jesus was a refugee, thinking biblically about migration. 
Yeah, you know, we we actually, when this became kind of a big news story last year, World Relief commissioned um, with some others a survey from LifeWay Research, because we were actually wondering, our mission isn't just to help refugees, it's to empower local churches to serve the vulnerable. And we kind of wondered, are churches still going to want to do this, given the, the controversy around it? And we found some interesting things, one of which was that the vast majority of, of Protestant pastors in the United States said, yes, we have a, a biblical responsibility to care sacrificially for refugees and other foreigners. But another finding of, of LifeWay research on this topic, when they actually polled uh, evangelical Christians, was that only about 12% said that they think about issues of refugees and migration primarily from the perspective of the Bible. So we wanted to provide a perspective on what the Bible says. And we started with the fact that Jesus was a refugee. Uh, my three-year-old daughter uh, noticed last Christmas time as she was playing with our nativity set that we don't have a King Herod figurine in our nativity set. <laughs> and I got to thinking about that. I've never seen a nativity set with a King Herod figurine. And usually he doesn't make the Christmas pageant. You know, we like to end the story with the, the three wise men, the magi, bowing before the baby Jesus with their, their gifts. And that's kind of where the curtain closes and we end the story. But that's not the end of the story in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And just after those wise men leave, the, this evil, tyrannical king, Herod, comes and is basically beginning a genocide of little boys in Bethlehem. And Joseph is warned in a dream by an angel to get up in the middle of the night and to flee the country to go to Egypt with Joseph or with Jesus and Mary. And Jesus himself then was a, a child refugee. And we don't know that much about how he was treated when he got there. Maybe he was welcomed. Maybe people had compassion on them. Or maybe some people thought, you know what, Joseph, we've got enough carpenters in this economy without you taking a job. Or, you know, we don't know what kind of diseases this kid has. Um, both of those are possibilities. We can only speculate. Um, we don't have the full details from the text. But that was part of the experience of Jesus Christ as a human being. And he was just one of many refugees in the stories of Scripture. And, and frankly, there's a lot more that the Bible says about how to treat refugees. Um, I think it's also important to keep in mind as we think about these issues that, that we who those of us who are Christians and are uniquely concerned about the persecuted church in other parts of the world, uh, a lot of the refugees coming into the United States, in fact, um, have been Christians over the last 10 years, more than of any other religious tradition. So that's not always the image we get in the media, but that's a significant percentage of those who are coming in even now. My guest is Matthew Sorens. We're talking about his new book, Seeking Refuge. Uh, the next topic, Matthew, the human face of forced migration, the power of a story. Uh, what are you writing here? Yeah, you know, I think it's really important that we ground ourselves in, in God's Word, but also really important that we ground ourselves in the reality that each of each refugee, every one of those 21 million people around the world, is a human being made in God's image, and they each have an individual story. And we find that often people's attitudes towards refugees are much more friendly and much more understanding and, and empathetic when they've actually met someone who's a refugee. So we couldn't, you know, have someone jump through the pages to meet every reader, but we tell the story of, of a handful of refugees whom we've been able to serve in the United States. Um, uh, one from Syria, one from Burundi in East Africa, uh, one from Vietnam who came many years ago now, one from Burma in Southeast Asia, which is actually the country from which more refugees came last year than any other into the United States. Um, and, you know, we just found it's an opportunity, one also from um, from Bhutan in South Asia. We want to be able to put a face on those stories because we find that when people understand what refugees have gone through, and, and their stories are different. There's no one story that represents all of them. But I think there are some commonalities. We find that refugees are just remarkably resilient people who have overcome a lot, even to get to the point where they could, um, you know, they've survived a lot by the point that they're being resettled to the United States. 
And, you know, as I've gotten to know many of those individuals, I, I lived for about eight years in an apartment complex where most of my neighbors were refugees. Um, I think it's just really important that we have a recognize that these are people and they each have an individual story. No fear in love grappling with genuine concerns over refugee resettlement. Uh, fill us in on that. Sure. So I certainly recognize that there are a lot of very genuine concerns right now about receiving refugees. Some of those are, are legitimate. Some of them probably are based on some misinformation. But what we really wanted to do with, with that chapter is really twofold. First, to look at the idea of are we being governed by fear? Because for those of us who are Christians, that's really not how we are supposed to be governed. Um, Jesus is, is quite clear um, that we should not be afraid. That's one of the most repeated commands in the Scripture. And that's not because we so trust the U.S. government or we trust the systems that are in place of the world, but because we can trust in God and trust that if we are faithful to following him, that God um, will provide for us, will protect us. So we, we start with that biblical you know, look at this issue of some of the concerns, but then we turn to the, the actual concerns themselves around security and economics and legal status. I don't have time to address probably each of those, but I think one of the most common right now is there's this very widespread misconception that the United States government has no capacity to vet those who are coming in as refugees, um, or we have no idea who these people are. And, and that's just not accurate. I mean, when World Relief, you know, we work with the State Department to resettle refugees, before we receive any case, we get a whole, you know, a whole file of biographic information about each refugee who's arriving. That information was collected and verified in a very thorough vetting process that usually takes at least 18 months and is all done overseas before those refugees get on an airplane. Um, that process is coordinated by the U.S. Department of State, Homeland Security, and Defense, along with the FBI and the National Counterterrorism Center. It's a process that is actually more thorough than the process which any other category of visitor or immigrant to the United States is required to undergo. So that's not to say we can't always be looking at how we make that process better and we have improved that process. Our government has improved that process since, for example, the late 70s when we began really admitting refugees in a significant number in a, through our, the Refugee Resettlement Program. Matthew, we have a lot of confidence in that, in that vetting process. In fact, with more than 3 million refugees admitted to the United States since the late 1970s, zero has ever committed an act of terrorism in the United States. Matthew Sorens is our guest. <clears throat> more with Matthew right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Join Richard Jordan, president of Grace School of the Bible, as he opens God's Word every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. If you missed the Sunday broadcast, you can listen and study along with Dr. Jordan 24-7 at WTLN.com by clicking on the podcast tab and then Riches of Grace. Riches of Grace, a service of Grace Impact Ministries at graceimpact.org. 5.30 Sunday on the new 94. 4.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Hiring people is probably the worst part of my job. It's such a hassle, the searching, the sorting through resumes. Most people don't have the right experience. We started using ZipRecruiter about three months ago. Right from the start, you could tell it was going to make hiring a lot easier. One click and my job was posted to 100 plus job boards, all the top sites. All of the candidates came to my dashboard and it's easy to compare them. Thumbs up if I like them. Thumbs down if I didn't. No emails and attachments, printing up docs, phone calls, none of that. 
and I couldn't believe the number of great applicants we got. I had the person we needed within one week. I don't know how we hired before ZipRecruiter. Whether you're looking to fill one position or 20, find the best candidates with ZipRecruiter, where your job is just one click away from 100-plus job sites. ZipRecruiter, the fastest way to hire. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash postjobs. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash postjobs. ZipRecruiter.com slash postjobs. Do you need a new roof but don't know who to call? Here's Eric Holm, the owner of Golden Corral and his experience with Total Roof Services. Total Roof Services takes care of all my Golden Corral restaurants and my homes. They are the most professional roofers I've ever used. Hi, I'm Eric Jackson, owner of Total Roof Services. We've made it our mission to serve our community. You're going to love your roof. I guarantee it. Visit us at TotalRoofServices.com. State license CCC 1330329. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Matthew Sorens is our guest. He's the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief. We're talking about his new book, Seeking Refuge. Matthew, let's get to this topic. From strangers to neighbors to family, understanding refugee resettlement. Yeah, you know, so that was, we really wanted to take the opportunity to explain, especially for those in the United States, what the process of refugee resettlement looks like. Again, because while that process has been happening for many, many years, I think most Americans have never had a reason to really understand what the process was. So we start by explaining the selection process. Most refugees do not come to the United States or go to Europe or to Canada or anywhere in the West. Um, more than 85% of refugees are actually in uh, the developing world. So they're usually in that country, neighboring the country that they fled from. Uh, but resettlement is considered as an option in, in a very small percentage of cases um, when, for example, that the refugee might be at risk of further persecution in that refugee camp or um, of otherwise uniquely vulnerable. So, for example, we get a lot of cases that are single moms who really couldn't support their families uh, in a condition where they're they're often not authorized to work in that in in a refugee camp or living in an urban setting as a refugee, sometimes there's people with some unique health conditions that are very readily treatable, but not in that setting where they're at. So those most unique most vulnerable cases it ends up being less than one percent that are referred to any country for resettlement. Uh, but the United States received about seventy thousand refugees last year through that resettlement process. Uh, after those individuals are considered, the small number who are selected go through that vetting process that I described. And part of that is determining that they're not a security threat, but the other part is just making sure they really are a refugee, that they meet that legal definition of a refugee. And then once they've been approved, which again is not most of them, but those who do get approved, they have a plane ticket purchased for them. It's actually a, a loan that they need to repay, um, but they, the ticket's purchased for them and they'll repay it once they're working in the United States. And they get on an airplane and they reach the U.S., and at the other end of that process at the airport, they're met by a resettlement agency like World Relief or often it's Catholic Charities or there's a Lutheran group, an Episcopal group, um, a Jewish group who all work with the federal government, with the State Department to help resettle refugees. And that resettlement agency's job is then to help that family to integrate into the community, to find work, to get kids into school, to make sure they have housing for, and that we can help cover the housing for a short period of time while they're finding work and getting into a job helping learn the language and all the cultural dynamics. And at World Relief, at least, our mission isn't just to do that ourselves, but to equip local churches to be a part of that process. Because we find that, you know, our caseworkers can't be best friends with every refugee who arrives. But a team from a local church, which we call a good neighbor team, 
can actually go much deeper relationally with that refugee who's arrived. And our goal is really to create long-term sustainable friendships. By and large, Matthew, are refugees excited and thrilled to come to the United States? I would say almost without exception, refugees are very, very grateful to be received by the United States, especially given the conditions that they're coming from. Um, that doesn't mean they're not nervous. I mean, these are people who didn't necessarily choose to migrate. They were forced out of their country. So they're also grieving a lot as well. And, and often grieving what's still happening to loved ones or family members back in their country of origin. But they're almost universally grateful to the United States for receiving them. And they know that they're one of the few, usually, from the, the setting that they're coming from who was selected for a settlement. Um, so they realize that that's a privilege and they want to make the most of it, work hard and contribute back into the, the community that's received them. Uh, talk about this one, Matthew. Not quite refugees, other displaced people. Yeah, I think sometimes the terminology gets confused, but it is important to know that there are people who are not technically refugees who are still very vulnerable, and I think as Christians, people whom we should be concerned with. So, for example, if you are fleeing poverty, you're not a refugee under the law. Or if you are, maybe you are technically fleeing persecution because of your religion, your political opinion, but no government has had the time to determine that yet. So, for example, someone might come on a tourist visa to the United States, and they would be an asylum seeker. That's actually the situation of most of the people in Europe right now. The, we talk about them as refugees, but until the government of one of those countries in Europe makes the determination that they meet the legal definition, they're actually considered an asylum seeker in that interim time. And that means they're not entitled to all the same uh, benefits or rights, which is, can be a challenge. Um, or, for example, if someone is fleeing a natural disaster, uh, that is very sympathetic. and It makes sense that they would feel they needed to flee, but they don't get the legal protections of a refugee because they're not fleeing persecution. And one of our goals with that chapter was just to highlight some of those different categories of people who are who are vulnerable, displaced people, even those who are displaced within a country. So, for example, in Syria, you've got about 5 million people who are refugees who've left the country. But there's another 7 million who are still within the borders of the country, but have had to flee their homes. So they're consider- considered internally displaced. And because the only government they can appeal to for assistance is often the government that was persecuting them in the first place, those internally displaced people are often uniquely vulnerable. And one of the things we've tried to do at World Relief is to come alongside churches in the Middle East and in other parts of the world, in Africa and Southeast Asia, to serve those who are internally displaced as well as those who are refugees. Now we move to this topic, the church's moment, practical opportunities to respond. Yeah, again, our real vision for refugee resettlement in the United States, as well as for serving refugees abroad, is that the church needs to be at the center of this refugee crisis, at the center of the solution to the crisis. Um, So, again, one way we're doing that is by equipping churches in places like Jordan and Germany and various other parts of the world. Um, We do something we call Unlock Hope, where people in the United States can come alongside churches overseas that are serving refugees and other vulnerable people. Um, The other side of that is in the United States. Again, it's only a small percentage of refugees who get resettled in the United States, but World Relief is one of the nine agencies nationally that is authorized to help resettle those refugees. So we're not everywhere in the country. Unfortunately, we're not in Orlando, but we do have about 27 offices around the country, and there are sister organizations that do resettlement in other places where we can basically connect teams from local churches. Again, we call that a World Relief a Good Neighbor Team who will come alongside uh, a family as they arrive. In fact, even before they arrive, help to set up their apartment, help to get all the furniture and household items that they need, be there at the airport potentially to welcome them, which is actually a really moving experience for people to finally feel like they're safe and they're at home, sometimes for the first time in their lives, Mm. and then just walk alongside them 
for, we usually ask people to commit to six months at least. Sometimes even our hope is actually that that'll become a, a long-term uh, reciprocal relationship as that refugee family maybe doesn't need very much as they've been here longer and longer, but they can just uh, share in friendship. Helping without hurting, understanding challenges to refugee adjustment. That's got to be an interesting chapter. It is, and you know, that was primarily written by one of my co-authors on the book, Isam Smir, who's a, a trauma therapist. Um, and has a lot of experience with some of the some of the unique challenges that refugees go through, both in the situations that they're fleeing and the persecution and the, the trauma that relates to that, but also some of the the impacts of that trauma even after they've been resettled. It, it's a one of the challenges to resettlement or to adjustment is um, post traumatic stress disorder, which uh, not all refugees suffer from, but a fair number do. Um, and one of the points we wanted to make in the book is that there actually is good treatment for PTSD. Um, it is something that people can heal from, but it's really important for volunteers or churches or even, you know, workers uh, who work with refugees in a professional context to understand the dynamics of what's happening with trauma and how that can impact people. Because sometimes people might behave in ways that seem strange to us. And if we understand how, how trauma impacts the brain, it actually helps us make a lot more sense and we can know how to help people to find healing. Of course, there's other challenges to adjustment as well, just the classic cross-cultural dynamics that are true of any immigrant into a new country, and understanding how that works in terms of cross-cultural communication or even conflict that could come up is really helpful for us to make sure we're serving refugees effectively and not, not inadvertently hurting them or ourselves. Root causes responding to the larger issues that uh, compel people to flee uh, I'm interested in hearing about this one, Matthew. Yeah, you know, of course we think as, as Christians we should be responding with compassion to those who've been forced to flee. Uh, but, you know, we also want to look at the issues that are a level back from there. Why are people having to flee in the first place? And why are the conflicts occurring that create that force people to flee? What are the situations that, that really uh, make that conflict more likely? So a lot of the work that World Relief does uh, with local churches outside of the United States, is working on peace building, so helping people from different ethnic groups or different religious groups to, to live together in, in peace and harmony. Um, we do that in places in various parts of Africa. Um, we're doing some of that in the Middle East now as well. Um, looking at issues of poverty, because often uh, when people are living in impoverished situations, they are more likely to become marginalized, and, uh, and that can create additional problems as well. Um, one of the examples that we shared in this story is the story of one of our colleagues who's actually now the director of World Relief Cambodia, but he came as a refugee to the United States um, back in, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, fleeing the, the horrific violence of the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia. And we look at how, um, just how an, a really ugly ideology there in Cambodia of the Khmer Rouge led to this horrific conflict, but also how churches and others in the Cambodian society are now helping to rebuild. And we really believe that that kind of work is possible. And we want to invest not just in responding to the immediate needs, but also in the long-term structural issues and in the root causes uh, that can create these mass displacements in the first place. Then we get to confronting injustice and why policy matters, Matthew. Yeah, we and you know, we intentionally put that towards the end of the book because I think there's a tendency to think of refugees right now as a political issue. And from our perspective, we actually wanted to start with it as a biblical issue, as a human issue, um, as a legal issue, and then look at, well, how do we look at public policies? And though that has a full range. That includes how our government 
you know, diplomatically works with other countries around the world to respond to refugee crises there. It also includes our policies of, you know, do we continue to receive refugees into the United States and how many of them? Um, you know, we, last year in the United States, overall, the U.S. government received 70,000 refugees. Again, that's less than one half of 1% of the world's refugees. Nobody is suggesting we should take them all or even take, you know, take you know, any significant percentage more of that. But I think that at a time when we are facing an unprecedented crisis, I know our experience at World Relief has been that local churches are saying they'd like to be able to do more. But the limit to that is how many refugees the United States government is is going to admit. So we are pleased that in the next year they're expecting to raise that number to 85,000 refugees. Still a small percentage overall, but it allows us to serve more people. Um, And part of that is a question of policy um, where we can reach out to our elected officials and let them know at a time when this has become controversial, that we value refugees. We think their lives are, are incredibly important. They're, they matter to God. And we would love for the United States to continue to welcome and receive refugees well. And what does it mean when you close out the book with a shining city on a hill? What does that mean? Yeah, you know, that expression, uh, many, many Americans might hear that expression and think of, of Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan once famously described the United States as a shining city on a hill, and he was setting back to an early, uh, an early founder of the United States. But even he, even that wasn't the original use of that phrase, because that phrase actually comes from the Bible, from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says that to his followers that you are the light of the world. You are like a shining city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And he says to let your light shine before people so that they would see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So while I want to acknowledge the important legacy that the United States has of welcoming refugees, and I'm proud of that as an American, I think when we think about being a a shining city on a hill, those words weren't written for the United States or to any country, but to the church, to God's followers, Jesus' followers. And I really believe that we have an opportunity in the midst of a global refugee crisis to let our light shine, to respond with love and hospitality and advocacy and welcome. And if we do, there are literally millions of people around the world who will be making their, uh, forming their opinions about who Jesus is based on how his professed followers respond. If that's one of love and advocacy, that will be drawing people to Jesus. If it's one of, of hostility or scapegoating or fear, that might turn a lot of people away from Jesus. Un- unfairly, because I don't think that's Jesus' response, but, but many people who don't yet know Jesus will be making their determinations about who Jesus is based on how the church responds. And I think we see some beautiful examples of that around the world. I was in Germany not long ago and heard of many, many churches giving sacrificially, opening up their buildings to care for refugees. Uh, in, in, in Canada, we have many, many churches uh, sponsoring refugees from Syria specifically. More than 25,000 Syrian refugees have come into Canada in, just since December. And we see that happening in the United States as well, but I actually think the potential in the U.S. is much greater than what we're currently seeing. And that's part of the reason we wrote Seeking Refuge, to really challenge people to step up to this opportunity. Give me 30 seconds, because we got to run here, uh, on the World Relief Organization. How do you describe it? Sure. So World Relief, we're the humanitarian arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. We were started back in the 1940s in response to the last great refugee crisis after World War II, helping to... Um, rebuild Europe. And we've been doing that um, internationally and in the United States. Our mission has always been to empower local churches to serve the vulnerable. We do that overseas. We do that in the United States as we resettle refugees and serve other immigrants. And we believe that it's part of our calling to, to welcome those who are strangers, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to make disciples of all nations. Matthew Sorens has been our guest. We've got more 
<clears throat> right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Welcome to the show that really stinks, Odor Events, brought to you by Citrus Magic. Today, the Jones family will name all the odor events they can in 30 seconds. Ready? Go! Rotten garbage can. Yes, Molly. Ew, musty basement. Good, Jimmy. Poopy diaper. <laughs> yep, Haley. Smelly socks. Yes, Dave. Stinky litter box. Yes, Molly. Ugh, funky fridge fumes. Good, Jimmy. Putty odor P.U. Yes, Haley. Dad's feet. Wait, cat pee. You're out of time. But I'm sorry. See you again next week for... That's gross. Odor Events, the show that really stinks. Get rid of the odor. Odor events in your home with Citrus Magic. The strength of its citrus makes odors disappear, leaving the fresh scent of natural citrus. Look for Citrus Magic in the air freshener aisle in Target, Kroger, Safeway, Publix, Walmart, and other fine stores everywhere. Hey there, travelers. You going somewhere? Need a hotel? Then call Hotel Wiz anytime, day or night for rates too low to publish. You can save up to 75% on over 500,000 hotels across the globe and get our best price guarantee with no booking or cancellation fees ever. We've got some of the lowest hotel prices you'll find in New York, Chicago, Las Vegas, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and a lot more. Don't waste your time surfing for deals. Make a free call right now and find deals too low to publish. Save up to 75% right now with no cancellation fees. And to make it even easier on you, we're here 24-7 to help. So call right now. Bookmark us in your cell phone. Whatever you need to do, just pick up the phone and call this number for hotel deals that'll knock your socks off. 800-590-1163. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Matthew Sorens, our guest in the first half hour from Aurora, Illinois, talking about his book, Seeking Refuge. Uh, Phil Waldrop is with us, uh, based in Decatur, Alabama, founder and president of Phil Waldrop Ministries. And his new book is out, Reaching Your Prodigal. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? Dr. David Jeremiah wrote the foreword. Uh, Phil, it's uh, really nice to catch up with you. Well, it's great to be with you, Pat. I just love your work and all you're doing, and just an honor to be with you. Why was it important uh, to write this book, or what prompted you to write it? Well, you know, as a traveling speaker, I met people all the time who came up to me and told me their stories of a son or a daughter who maybe was reared in church, maybe they were, uh, you know, had great parents, but then they start making bad decisions, and now they're they're far from the Lord. They're just they're just destroying their lives. And parents would ask me, "What did I do wrong? What when? What do I do now?" And so I wanted to go and not only give a biblical perspective, but also a practical perspective in doing some research to help parents uh, say, "Here's the things that maybe will help you." as you wade through this process, because a lot of times parents do things with the right motives, but they're doing the wrong thing. They're doing more damage than they're doing good. So I wanted just to give them hope and some help. You open your book with this topic, 
understanding your pain, uh, what's that about? Well, it's important for people to understand that, you know, you're not the only one in this battle. Many times when we have a child that is making very bad decisions or they're just, they're just not got their priorities right, we have a tendency to think we're the only parents going through this. And so I wanted parents to understand you're not the only one. There are lots of parents who are going through it. And as a result, you shouldn't be able to be encouraged by some of the things they've done that would help them to help their child start making right choices, but also to let them know, hey, there is hope, and don't give up. You know, tomorrow is not the end of the battle, and it may take a while, but there is hope. So to help them see you're hurting now, but there's hope in the future. Now let's move to this one, seeing your prodigal. What's that mean? Well, the thing I think people need to realize is that prodigals come in different types. Now, the word prodigal, as I use it, is a word that means wasted. Uh, it means they're wasting their life, they're wasting their potential, their talent. Uh, but one thing we think of prodigal, immediately what comes to our minds is a drug addict or someone who maybe is an alcoholic who has some kind of addiction in their life. But prodigals come in different forms. And so I like to sit down and say, let's talk about the different kinds of prodigals. For example, uh, people think about what I, the type prodigal that I just mentioned, but there's other types. For example, there is a prodigal that maybe is just not motivated. Um, they're not making destructive choices. They're just not making any choices. And they're just very complacent about what they're doing. Then there's the intellectual prodigal. What do you do to the kid who has a great mind? He goes off to school and maybe he comes home and he tells his parents, you know, all this stuff that you've taught me, I, I totally disagree with it. Uh, it's not true anymore. I can make the life choices that I want to make. And maybe they even renounce everything, you know, not just their, their spiritual faith, but they may renounce their family. They may renounce the values they were taught. Um, and in addition to that, what about the people who have what I call religious prodigals? What do you do? You know, I spoke with a man recently who told me that his son had renounced his Christian faith, and he actually not only had uh, gone to uh, another faith, but had decided to move to another country, and he was committed to being a terrorist against the United States. And the man, as we were talking, he, he was just destroyed. And in that sense, his son has gotten involved in an extreme form of a religious faith and wants to be a terrorist, but he is hurting. And because of that, I wanted people to see prodigals don't just come in one variety. There's a whole variety. And, of course, there's those prodigals that are embarrassing us, and as, as I said, those that are just plain complacent um, in their life that they just don't have no motivation. And so all of those I want parents to understand, there's not one size fits all. Uh, my guest, Phil Waldrop from Decatur, Alabama, responding to your prodigal. That's trop uh, topic number three, Phil. Right. Well, one of the things that I think people do is when they have a prodigal, they don't always know how to respond. So the first thing we do is we tend to condemn our prodigal. You know, we become the nagging parent. We become the one who's constantly telling them how 
stupid they are. And that is the total wrong approach to take, because when you do, then they start trying to validate their own personal positions that they're taking. So then we try to make them feel guilty. And we talk about, well, you know, your grandparents are so embarrassed by you. And and we try just somehow to motivate them by guilt. Well, guilt never motivates anybody. In fact, it builds bridges, I think, sometimes and pushes our kids away. Some just try to ignore the problem. They just simply say, you know what, I'm just not even going to deal with it. Or we try to try justifying um, the actions of our kids. You know, sometimes we will say to uh, people, well, the reason why he's this way is because of this person in his life. Or especially, I hear it a lot when there's broken marriages. Well, you know, my ex-husband, his father, and they start blaming them. And so we start trying to make excuses and lies, and all of that is the total wrong approach that we need to take because we're really condemning the child rather than trying to make a bridge to the child to help them start making right decisions. Now, Phil, let's talk about principle number one, and there's six principles we're going to get into here. Uh, Principle number one, getting over the guilt. Well, the first thing parents say is, what did I do wrong? And whenever I would hear parents say that, I started to look at them and say, what I just heard you say to me with your question is, Your child is making poor decisions because you failed as a parent. And without exception, they all look at me and say, well, apparently I did something wrong. So they spend their life going back from the moment that child was born to the present, analyzing every decision they ever made involving that child. They may say, well, if I had put them in a different school, or maybe if we had moved to a different community, or maybe if I'd allowed them to be on a different little league baseball team. And so we try to make find a reason for the waywardness of our child. And so when I heard that, I asked, and I would ask that question, why do you feel guilty? And parents would tell me that. I began to realize, as a Christian, I began to realize in a biblical perspective that there's a source for that, even within the Christian community. Number one is we forget that our children have a sin nature. Uh, by you know, if they make choices, if they make decisions, uh, there are choices that come natural to them to make, and there's not always decisions that we would want them to make that is in line with what I would say is biblical uh, viewpoint. And secondly, we somehow take a verse of scripture, Proverbs twenty-two six, the verse that many of us have heard all of our life: "Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it." And so we hear that verse all our life, and we think, aha, that verse teaches if we do it right, our kids turn out right. And yet Bible scholars tell us that that verse is not a verse referring to parenting skills. Now, if you approach it from the standpoint it is parenting, then I would say it is a verse that teaches, if you understand the original Hebrew, that it is a verse that is teaching that if you allow a child to be trained in their interests, Uh, For example, if a child enjoys music and you train them in music, they will pursue that the rest of their life. But that verse does not teach that if you do parenting perfectly, your kid always turns out to be perfect. And when people challenge me, I look at them and I say, well, let me give you a biblical example. Uh, If you believe that as a parent you can do it right and your kids always turn out right, then would you explain to me what God did wrong with Adam and Eve? He was a perfect father. They were in a perfect environment and God did everything right. But Adam and Eve still walked away. Now, why is that important for parents to understand? Why is it important for them to get over the guilt? 
because I believe until the Lord tells you what you did wrong, you must assume you did nothing wrong. Because as long as you feel guilty as a parent, you're going to be in a weakened position to help your child. They're going to be able to manipulate you, especially if they have addictive behaviors. They're going to be able to manipulate you to get what they want. And so you begin enabling them versus helping them. So the very first thing I want parents to understand is until you become clearly aware of what you did wrong, you must assume you did nothing wrong. And don't parent from a position of guilt, position, uh, parent from a position of strength by saying that I am not going to feel guilty, I am not going to let this destroy my life because of the decisions my child makes. And once you can take that step, Pat, to get I'm, the feeling, I'm not going to feel guilty, all of a sudden you're in a position of strength now that you can begin to help your child and to help them make good decisions. Phil Waldrop is our guest from Decatur, Alabama. We're talking about his new book, Reaching Your Prodigal. Principle number two, let's get to that one, Phil, removing the barriers. Well, to put that another way, I would say it is important for parents, when they know something they did wrong in their parenting, to go to their child and to ask for forgiveness. Sometimes when we have a conversation with our, a child, especially a, a rebellious child, we can look at that child and say, what did I do wrong? And they may say things to us that we feel were perfectly good decisions. I've heard kids say to parents, well, you know, Dad, you had that job that took you out of town. You didn't get to come to my sporting events. And that child is wounded. Well, of course, the father's trying to say, hey, times were hard. That was the only job I can get. But trying to justify a decision sometimes builds a barrier where the kid thinks we cannot have communication. So I really caution parents, don't try to make excuses for the decision you did. You don't have to say it was a wrong decision, but you can say to a child, you know, when I look back, if I knew it was wounding you, as you now tell me it did, I would have done things differently. Now, that doesn't say, hey, I wouldn't have taken that job. It would have said I would have done something different. And I think as parents, we would have. So the key I want parents to remember is that you've got to have communication. When there's barriers, there's no communication. And communication occurs with our rebellious children when we allow them to speak into our life and say things to us that we may not agree with it, but we don't want to keep trying to justify things that hurt them. So we can actually say to them, hey, I want to have a relationship. Let's have a conversation. I'm not going to make excuses and look at them. You can always apologize for the pain it caused because I don't think no parent wants to hurt their child or intended to hurt their child. And uh, they may bring up a divorce situation. They may bring up something that happened. But you don't try to justify it, but have that conversation because your goal is you want to remove any barriers that exist so you can have honest conversation without making excuses. Phil, I, wa- I want you to get to the third principle, extending <clears throat> excuse me, extending unconditional love. Well, you know the hard part that many parents have is they look at me and they say, but I love my child. And I ask them, do you give them unconditional love? And parents quickly say, of course. And then I ask them to define unconditional love. And they have a little difficulty doing that. So let me give you a definition of unconditional love. Unconditional love is a love that is not based on performance. 
Unconditional love says, even if you become better and you become the model citizen in all of Florida, I'm not going to love you any more than I love you right now. And the other hand is, no matter how bad you make decisions, I'm going to love you the same. My love for you as my child is not dependent on your performance. And, you know, we want to say we have that, but then I ask parents, well, have you ever found yourself thinking, boy, I wish this kid had never been born? Uh, Have you ever found yourself thinking, well, I wish this kid would just go away and not come home? As parents, when we're hurting, we sometimes think those thoughts. That's not unconditional love. So we have to make it our default mode. What I mean is we have to predetermine we're going to have unconditional love so that when a crisis comes, we react appropriately. One of the things I share in my book, Reaching uh, Your Prodigal, is I share the story of two men, uh, both leaders in the community. In fact, one of them was a pastor of a church. One man is at home one day, and his teenage daughter comes in and tells him that I am pregnant and she wasn't married. And the man, who was a very respected man in the community and in his church, he got very angry. He starts screaming at his daughter. And by his own story, he begins to pound on the coffee table and tell her how she has destroyed their family and their reputation. And in his anger, he told her, get your things and get out. I never want to see you again. I never want to see this child. I'm concerned you're dead. Hold your thoughts, Phil. We'll be right back. All right, perfect. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new 94.9 FM at AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Hi, I'm Barbara Sandek, your host on Grace Notes, a 15-minute program that contains biblical teaching and a wide variety of music. Some of the subjects we address are why do we have trials and cultivating intimacy with God. You can listen right here on WTLN every Sunday at 2.45 p.m. Can't catch the whole broadcast? Visit our podcast on the web 24-7 on WTLN.com. So tune in. You won't want to miss it. What's new at the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN? Addison's Walk, Saturday afternoons at 4. Welcome to Addison's Walk. This is Michael Phillips. I am the headmaster of Smith Prep, and I am the host of Addison's Walk. We are right now in the process of introducing the subject of what is the church. few questions that are as important as this one. It's going to be a lively discussion. I'm excited about it. All new Saturday afternoons at 4. Addison's Walk, only on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Addison's Walk is a ministry of the Smith Prep Education Foundation. If you're over the age of 50 and considering buying an annuity in the next 60 days, I have some urgent news for you. Don't buy an annuity until you understand the pros and cons of annuities. A free book to help you maximize your retirement income from PBS host and three-time author Josh Melberg has been released. This book reveals little-known truths about annuity strategies in simple-to-understand terms. Grab a pen right now because we're about to offer you this free book that unlocks the five little-known secrets we believe baby boomers and seniors should know before buying an annuity. Call 800-378-8005 now to get your personalized copy rushed to you today. Do you want to avoid mistakes baby boomers and seniors can make when they buy annuities? Those mistakes now could be costly later to you and your family. Call 800-378-8005. That's 800-378-8005. Employees of J.D. Melberg Financial have the appropriate licenses for the products they offer. 
You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Phil Waldrop is our guest. We're talking about his book, Reaching Your Prodigal. Phil, I want you to finish that story uh, before the break. Okay. Well, I was talking about two fathers who, who were experiencing the same thing and how we need to have unconditional love as our default mode. And it was one man who was very respected in the community, found out his daughter was going to be an unwed mother, and the result was he got very angry. He told her, get your things, get out, and told her, as far as he was concerned, she was dead from that point on. And the man really thought he was making the right decision. Uh, About six months later, the pastor of the church that man attended stood up and announced that he, the pastor, and his wife had learned their daughter was expecting a child and she wasn't married. And the pastor was weeping, and he said, I know you're going to hear about this. But the pastor took a different approach. He said, you know, my wife and I, uh, we're embarrassed about what has happened. There's, we're embarrassed about the decisions our daughter has made. But we're going to love our daughter. We're going to support her through this. And while we are a bit ashamed of what she's done, we're not ashamed she's our daughter. And in front of his congregation, he said to his daughter, I love you. Now, when I tell that story, I look at people and I say, which of those two kids do you think is in church, uh, who has great relationship with their family, and who is making good choices today? And it was the child who received unconditional love. And so we have to have that as a default, not approving the decisions our kids make, but letting them know unconditional love is not based on performance. I'm going to love you the same whether you make good choices or bad choices. And when we can love with unconditional love, then we're in a position to help our children, especially emotionally and spiritually, as they walk through some of the decisions that they're making. Principle four, allowing the pain of wrong decisions. Well, every time I mention unconditional love, people immediately think that means every time my child is hurting, that I rush in to remove the pain. And I say, no, unconditional love says, I love you so much I'm going to let you face the consequences of your decisions. And so, you know, if, if, for example, a child gets in jail, I think we can extend grace one time. Many times kids do learn a lesson. But when behavior is repeated, we have to say, son, I'll come see you every day at jail, but I'm not going to get you out of jail anymore. Or, you know, I can't pay off your gambling debts. Or, you know, this is the third job you've been fired from. I can't help you get another job. So we have to allow our children to face the consequences of their choices. You know, Pat, you can ask any law enforcement officer, you can ask any school teacher, and they will tell you that whenever a child has parents who immediately rush in to blame the teacher or blame the law enforcement officer when their child has been caught doing something wrong and immediately take the side of the child, that child is going to have a very troubled future because good parenting says... I love you. I'll walk through this with you. Uh, I'll help you understand what's happening. You know, I'll help you get into counseling. I'll help you make choices. But I've got to let you face the consequences of what you've done. In that story in the Bible, the prodigal son, that we're very familiar with from Luke chapter 15 that Jesus told, one of the things the father did that was so wise was he allowed his son to go to the far country, And even to get into the pig pen, which in the Jewish culture of his day was the worst thing a child could do, let him get into that pig pen because it was there he came to himself. 
And sometimes it is in a jail cell. Sometimes it's when they don't have a job and they can't pay their bills that uh, a child comes to themselves. And so we have to help them see the consequences of what they've done. That's tough and it's hard, but it's something that is essential if prodigals and rebellious children are going to come around and see the error of their way. Phil Phil Waldrop's new book is out, Reaching Your Prodigal. Uh, Principle 5, Phil, Watching Your Words. Well, you know, sometimes as parents, when we have conflict with our kids and our kids are making bad choices, we do say the wrong things. Now, I mentioned earlier in our conversation about words of condemnation and screaming and that kind of thing. But sometimes we try to control our kids with our words, and that never works. And one of the areas in particular I'd love for people to have a takeaway today is think about the very person you dislike the most, maybe the person having the best influence on your child. You may not like their coach at school, for example. I know you and I both have a love for basketball, and I'll use that picture of you know a basketball coach. We may not like his coaching skills. We may not think he's the best coach in the world, but he may be the very person having the greatest impact on our son or daughter, it may be. So sometimes we've got to make sure that we're not criticizing positive uh, influences in their life. So we've got to be careful what we say. And one of the things that I, I really caution parents about is not running down other people in the community. We shouldn't be doing that anyway. But in front of our kids, sometimes if we're critical of the church, uh, our community leaders, sometimes our kids interpret that to discredit everything they're doing. So we must guard what we say and speak words that are encouraging rather than words that are condemning. And I would encourage parents to do this. When you have a child that's making poor decisions, when they do make a good decision, I would make sure that child hears words of affirmation that are sincere from the heart, but let praise them when they make good decisions. And sometimes that in itself is a motivation for kids to start making right decisions. Principle number six, praying the hard prayers. You know, we pray for our kids, Pat. We want them to make good decisions. But sometimes I discover we as parents have to pray hard prayers first. There are two things I notice that often influences a person who is a child who's making bad decisions. One is it's uh, the influence of a friend. Someone comes into their life who is making good choices, who has a heart for the Lord, and they bond a friendship. It might be over sports, it might be over a common interest of music or art, but there's somehow they become friends with this person. And we pray, Lord, bring those people into their life, and then pray for that person that they can have a positive influence on your child. And then the second is probably the hardest prayer, is where we as parents are willing to say, whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. And that may mean, you know, it may mean that I've got to make hard decisions, like allowing them to suffer a little bit because of the choices they make. That's tough. It may mean that we have to say, you know, if I need to be sick or even if I need to die as a parent, because one of the things that really gets the attention of rebellious children is when they lose a parent or a grandparent or someone they love. It causes them to pause and evaluate their life. And so I think it is very important that we as parents, not that we want to die, oh, of course not, I would be sick, but to say to the Lord, Lord, whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. And when we start with that, Lord, change me first before you change my child, it's amazing how we're always praying for the kid when we need to sometimes say, Lord, change my heart and my outlook and give me the strength to make the right decisions myself. 
And that's a tough prayer, and we pray that prayer, and we mean it with all of our heart. It's amazing how the Lord sometimes changes us, and in turn, he can change our child. And then, Phil, you close on this one, uh, hoping for the end of the journey. Well, every parent who has a rebellious child knows that there are days when you think this child is never going to get any better. You just want to throw your hands up and you want to give up hope. Well, here's what I want to say to those parents today. First of all, sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes a child maturing, getting older. Sometimes they do have to go through some very painful experiences, but with time, there is hope. You know the story, again, of that prodigal son in the Bible. Uh, he was gone, and the Scripture says there arose a famine in the land. And you know, many people think that took at least seven years. So he didn't leave on Friday and come back on Monday. He was gone for years. And I'm sure the father in that story gave up a lot of times and thought, he's not coming home. But it's interesting, when he did come home, the father saw him coming down the road. And I think that father maintained hope. He kept his eye on the road so when his son was coming, he could run to him. And the word I have for parents today is, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how many bad decisions your child makes, never lose hope. Because when you lose hope that it's going to get better, then you've really lost the battle. And uh, find someone who may be going through the same thing or has been through the same thing that can be your encourager, that can pray with you. Find a group. There are many wonderful groups in churches and other organizations that are there as a support group for parents who have children uh, who are making some really hard choices. And find those people so they can give you strength. My guest has been Phil Waldrop. Uh, We have uh, had a good time here, folks. Glad you've joined us. Uh, But we do have a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Hello, I'm Pastor Glenn Riggs, inviting you to be our guest in celebrating all that the Lord has done and experience our pioneer spirit. We're excited to share Starlight Baptist new building with you. It's been several years in the making. We now can share God's Word with so many more souls in Central Florida through our many ministries here at Starlight. Please visit us at starlightbaptist.com. And don't miss the broadcast ministry of Starlight Baptist. What does the Bible say? Every weekday afternoon at 4 with Pastor Riggs, right here at the intersection of faith and reason. The new 94.9 FM. And AM 950 WTLN. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Well, folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Matthew Sorens was our guest in that first half hour uh, talking about his book, Seeking Refuge. And then Phil Waldrop joined us, uh, Reaching Your Prodigal. Uh, two interesting guests. Uh, please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, I've got a brand new book out. It's just out. It's called Humility. Uh, Barber Books, uh, the publisher. Uh, just getting into bookstores and uh, Amazon.com as well. So uh, I do hope you enjoy it. In the meantime, uh, have a great day tomorrow uh, in church with your family and a wonderful week ahead. And then next weekend at the same time, we'll be back 
for the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.